You are listening to the Paranormal Chronicles radio show. Here is your host, paranormal researcher and author of the best-selling A Most Hunted House, Gavin Lee Davis. Welcome, my name is G.L. Davis, founder of theparanormalchronicles.com and author of the best-selling Haunted Horror of Haverford West. Dare you read alone in bed at night? I do hope you are all safe and well at this time and I send you much love from Pembrokeshire, West Wales. Please keep safe, keep healthy and we will get through this together. Thank you for joining me on my journey of discovery to the afterlife, immortality and beyond. The Paranormal Chronicles podcast series brought to you by sick-books.com. So visit sick-books.com today and start your paranormal reading adventure. If this is your first time listening, then please follow so you never miss an episode. Plus, all followers get entered into a followers monthly prize draw to win a fantastic book from sick-books.com. Press follow now, download and listen to our huge archive of amazing content. Big news for us, we are now on Patreon. Become a VIP today and access ad-free and early access episodes, have extra draws in the book giveaway, access to digital content, be part of an exclusive VIP Amazon prize draw, and get this, you get two free digital books, and one of them, it's my controversial bestseller, Go Sex, The Violation. All of that for a free pound or dollar subscription. Head over to www.patreon.com forward slash TPC VIP. That's patreon.com forward slash TPC VIP. Go VIP today. Final announcement before we get on with this incredible show. I am thrilled and honoured to announce that my fourth book is set for release. Harvest, the true story of alien abduction, is ready for pre-order. Release date, Halloween 2020. Pre-order Harvest, the true story of alien abduction by me, G.L. Davis, today from wherever books are sold on tonight's show. Do people really want to live forever? Do heaven and hell exist? And if so, what are they like? If immortality were achievable, would it be worth having? Tonight we explore all of this and so much more with the amazing Piotr Biankowski, author of the new Hot to Trot, where eerie voices lead, which is his study into our obsession with immortality. Piotr is an amazingly accomplished gentleman. He is an archaeologist and museum curator. He has been professor of archaeology and museology at the University of Manchester, director of Manchester Museum, chair of the Northwest Federation of Museums and Galleries, and before that was the head of antiquities at the National Museums Liverpool. He is the author of the incredible new book, Where Eerie Voices Lead. You have questions, he has answers on with the show. Big question. Do people really want to live forever? You know, Gavin, some people, I think, really do want to live to live forever. Other people have thought about it and decided they definitely don't want to live forever. But one thing uh, seems to me certain is that everybody has at least thought about it. So, you know, I'm an archaeologist and it seems to me that immortality is one of those topics, a core element of every human life and of every culture. Immortality is a bit like food, shelter and sex. I certainly don't know of any cultures past or present which haven't expressed in some way or other this fascination 
of the idea uh, for living forever. A lot of them have tried to uh, attain it in some way or other. A lot of the writing on the topic, the myths, the legends, the epics, conclude that in fact immortality is unattainable, but every single culture has actually considered it. So it is something that I think links us to every other human being, past, present and future, whether you want to live forever or whether you don't, you've still thought about it. Oh, most definitely. So from earliest times, humans have believed in many different ways to achieve immortality. This book, Where Eerie Voices Lead, is a history of those options, right? Can you explain more about this? As you say, there are lots of different ways to achieve uh, immortality. If you, if you think about how can I live forever, either on this earth or in some afterlife, well, on this earth, obviously, your only choice is to try and extend your life in some way. But a lot of cultures, a lot of religions have uh, offered different ways of living together through some sort of afterlife. So it could be through a resurrection, for example. So you die, but after death, your body is resurrected and you, you live in an afterlife, be it something like a heaven or more depressingly, something like a hell. Or maybe you might be reincarnated into another body and there will be a series of, uh, of these reincarnations or maybe some other transformation into an animal, a plant or some sort of spirit. There's of course the idea of the immortal soul, that it's not necessarily your body that will live on after death, but there's something inside you that is immortal and it is that immortal soul that will uh, survive. So there's different routes to immortality. And what my book has tried to do is to look across the whole world, different cultures, how they have uh, how they have understood these ways to live forever and looks at the origins and development of all these uh, different ideas. What I'm particularly fascinated in is what stands out for me is how any culture's beliefs about the afterlife reflect the values of that society. So much of uh, this is not about evidence, you know, for or against resurrection or reincarnation. It's about it's about worldviews. It's about cultural norms. It's about goals and values. Uh, and also what fascinates me is how much was borrowed from other cultures, adapted and reinterpreted to fit into cultures with different values and understandings of the world. Uh, in many ways, the history of immortality, a uh, history of borrowing and adaptation, and sometimes it's actually quite difficult to see where an idea originated first. And that's really what my, uh, my book is about. Most scientists, though, they don't think immortality of any kind is achievable. Are they right in this way of thinking? You know, this is uh, another question of uh, of worldviews. The vast majority of scientists today um, have a materialist worldview, and so they believe that um, only material things exist, and uh, anything mental isn't due to a soul. It is due to uh, interactions of uh, of neurons in your brain. They have some evidence for it, but what they don't have is proof. So, for instance, instead of a soul, they think that all you've got is uh, neurons firing in your brain. There's quite a lot of evidence to suggest uh, they may not be right because there are a lot of explanatory gaps. And in fact, quite a few leading neuroscientists have, uh, have questioned whether the stress on this materialist explanation is preventing us from looking for other explanations. So, you know, they may well be right, but we don't know. They may be right, but other explanations cannot be discounted. 
in fact, if you look at all the different worldviews that lie behind things like resurrection and reincarnation and transformation and the immortal soul, they all have evidence for them, but they all have explanatory gaps. And one of the things I've tried to do in the, in the book is to make those clear, to say this is all about worldview. You can't prove any of the views, but you can't discount any of them. I'm quite interested in people maybe uh, realising a little bit more that other views other than those they themselves hold dear actually have to be treated with respect and given an airing because you cannot dismiss them. You know, they're never incoherent. They're never irrational. And I think as a follow up to what you've just said, that if science could prove there was a form of immortality available, that would very much change the way we lived our lives. Well, of course, for a few generations, we've had the interest in um, in cryonics. So shortly after death, freezing people to liquid nitrogen temperatures uh, with the hope that sometime in the future, science will come up either with a cure for whatever killed them or a way of extending their life either for a long time or even indefinitely. That is, in fact, what the people who uh, run cryonics institutes and who put their money into uh, putting their bodies into these uh, institutes, uh, it's what they hope for. And unfortunately, at the moment, the case is that not a single person has yet been revived. And there is, of course, a danger that the uh, both the process of death and the process of freezing could uh, destroy parts of the brain irrevocably. But one of the things, in fact, about cryonics that hasn't been discussed very much is well, what sort of life, if it turned out to be true, what sort of life would these um, revived people come to? Because lives aren't just biological, lives are also social. Yeah. So most of these people are individuals. You're not having, on the whole, families and friends cryonically preserved. So let's hypothetically imagine that that there's ways of uh, of reviving human beings that are invented in you know 50 or 100 times and somebody cryonically preserved today is revived in a hundred years time they're on their own they haven't got their family they haven't got their friends a lot of the things that they're used to aren't being done anymore the skills they have are useless it's actually interesting to question is that the sort of life that you had in mind? Is that an immortality worth having? And it sort of links to a lot of the epics um, and, and legends going back thousands of years, which looked at the idea of immortality. And a lot of them concluded that it might not be worth having. Tellingly, in a lot of these legends, the, the immortals end up craving death rather than craving the continuation of immortality. And I do wonder if uh, anybody were in the future to be revived from cryonic preservation, if they'd be in the same boat. Yeah, and I think we get a lot of examples of that in like science fiction, Brave New World, uh, H.G. Wells. Well, there, there, there are quite a few science fiction books which explore immortality and and there's some specifically which look at the social implications of immortality and you know they're they're sort of part of or at the end of a long sequence going back thousands of years of uh, of writers who have somehow explored what would it be like to be immortal so for instance uh, back in the uh, 7th century bce about the time that homer's odyssey was being uh, written the myth of tithonus explored 
what happens if you have eternal life but not eternal youth many centuries later jonathan swift's gulliver's travels one of yeah. his uh, what one of the places where gulliver lands has uh, some people who are immortal not the whole society but a, a few people and it turns out that it is so dreadful that Gulliver is inoculated against the idea of wanting immortality. And he actually says uh, any sort of death would be preferable to this sort of uh, um, unending life. So these science fiction writers are at the end of this long, uh, long sequence of, uh, of writers who are interested in exploring actually what would it be like uh, both for the individual and for society? And would it be worth it? Like vampires, for example, they have this gift of eternal life, but then the longer they live, the less they are human. They they lose their initial essence of who they were, and they basically become like an addicted animal. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of downsides. If Once you think it through, there are a lot of downsides to uh, immortality. And, you know, those who perhaps crave it wish they had, had asked for something else. It may not be a blessing. It may, in fact, turn out to be a curse. If immortality were achievable, would it actually be worth living? It sounds great, but like everything, there has to be a price to pay. Exactly. And, and you know, it doesn't matter, I think, if you're talking about the extension of life uh, on Earth through something like um, cryonics, or perhaps if you're talking about an afterlife of some kind. Obviously, there are different routes to immortality. But for example, if we take the idea of resurrection or an immortal soul, so something that, that, that is in the Christian, uh, Jewish and Islamic um, um, traditions, a lot of people ask, well, will heaven be boring? And there are so many different types of heaven and hell over the yeah. centuries that you have to ask, well, which heaven are you talking about? Some, some heavens to modern ears probably do sound boring. The medieval heaven was all about the beatific vision, the face-to-face -face relationship with God for all eternity. Um, and certainly by the 18th century, um, there, was a, there was a change in what people wanted. There was much more stress on uh, personal individuality and identity and social progress. And people began to wonder, should heaven maybe be more about personal development rather than just sort of this static uh, worshipping of God. And there were quite a few influential descriptions of, of a Christian heaven that uh, appeared in the 18th century. It became very popular with 19th century Christians, which portrayed heaven as a continuation of life on earth. So you had not so much just looking at God forever, but you had your friends, you had family, you had marriage, you had weddings and sex. Interestingly, though, no pregnancies or babies. And so they gave this opportunity for individual and social progress and uh, development. So there's, you know, many different types of of uh, heaven. Some of them may be boring. Some of them probably be pretty identical. The descriptions certainly of them are identical with what we find on Earth. Could you give us some insight into what hell would be like on the flip side? Well, interestingly, there depictions of hell vary less over the centuries than depictions of uh, of heaven. So so hell as a place of fiery torment and punishment for the wicked seems very similar across uh, cultures. It actually first appears in the last few centuries BCE in um, in early Jewish documents. This this idea that hell may be something to do with the uh, fire. But the and the first really detailed description of what we might call 
a recognizably modern hell. So a combination of fire with punishment for the wicked is in Virgil's Aeneid, which uh, he wrote in the first century BCE as a uh, on a commission from the Emperor Augustus. But what's intriguing is that Virgil himself may have borrowed from slightly earlier Jewish documents this idea of a fiery underworld and also the idea of a guide through hell because the Jew Jewish documents talk about an accursed valley which has a fiery abyss and this seems very similar to the sort of image that, that, that Virgil was using. I always imagined hell would be an amazing place because it's marketing, Christian marketing at its very best, that if you don't live a devout life to God, you know, you will go to hell and it will be really bad for you. But if you're good, you'll go to heaven and it'll be a great place to be. All your friends, your family, your dogs, your pets, it's sunny all the time. It's great. You can have sex and there'll be no pregnancy and you can eat what you want and not get fat. And what you've got to do is give God the thumbs up and say, thank you very much. You know, you've been great. Whereas I always thought, if hell was to exist, it would be this amazing place. Satan and or Lucifer, the devil, he'd be like, you know, come down here. You can do what you want. You won't be judged. You know, you can eat what you want. And that's what I always imagined hell would be. And that live in hell, that expression of live in hell was what we experience now with our depression and with our, you know, areas of our life that make us ill or question ourselves or worthless or whatnot. So very interesting interpretation of hell. It's interesting that you think that you could do what you want in hell, that you wouldn't be judged, because the whole idea of heaven and hell is about afterlife, rewards and punishments. So the, the, the classic medieval descriptions of hell are all about punishments. I'm not sure if it would be quite as delightful a place to be as you seem <laughs> to think it is, because the descriptions certainly I mean, from the first century, onwards, well into the medieval um, period, the descriptions mainly focus on the punishments for different types of wickedness. So, you know, for example, uh, uh, common are hanging punishments in which the dead are hanged by parts of their bodies used to commit the sin. So they're uh, hanged by their genitals or their breasts or their eyebrows or their hair or by their tongues or by, the, by their ears, punishments by fire. Uh, are very common. So you can be immersed in a fiery river or in a burning furnace or impaled on wheels of fire. I would know. I'm not sure if this is a, a place I'd really like to spend all eternity in. Yeah, I don't really want to risk it either, if I'm honest. <laughs> I always look at things from like a marketing and sales perspective. And I was like, follow this brand, the benefits of this, but you could be missing out on that. And then the other brand is saying, no, no, actually, they're lying. That's not the case. We would actually do this for you. And that's how I looked at religion. It, it's evolution that it was just fantastic marketing. You know, it's important to get as many people on board, to get people following, get as devout as possible. And that's just how I looked at it. And I hope I never find out what hell really is like. So uh, I'm hoping, hoping that's the case. I'll be talking about marketing. The one of the things that, that, that is quite interesting in the way it differs in different conceptions of heaven is the presence or absence of sex. And that is a sort of a common feature of those different conceptions. So within Christianity, for example, there was a, a, always has been a real tension about sex. And certainly in medieval times, that led to ideals of sexual purity and asceticism in early in medieval Christianity. And as I just mentioned particularly horrific punishments in hell for sexual sins 
on the one hand, and on the other hand, the higher levels of heaven, because heaven was seen as being graded. The higher levels were reserved for the sexually pure, the virgins and the ascetics. So that's in Christianity. On the other hand, sex in heaven is actually a key focus in um, Islamic heavens or yeah. in the uh, in the Celtic heavens. So and, and it may well be going back to your idea of marketing. Some scholars have concluded that Islam's encouragement of sex in heaven may actually have more to do with its origins as a religion of conquest and conversion, and therefore with a need to offer attractive rewards for potential converts. And we can see even today a prevalence of uh, Islamic martyrdom, yeah. that some of the motivation for these uh, young men is the idea that they will have continuous sex in heaven, which in culturally is actually denied them. On, on earth. So that continues to be a strong marketing aspect of the Islamic heaven, uh, as opposed to the Christian heaven. That was what was in my mind, because I remember on a news broadcast, there was like an edited video of, of a young chap, Islamic chap, who was going to commit an atrocity. He actually went through with a bombing and they showed a video. And in his video, he said, please say nobody be upset for him because very soon he was going to be in, in heaven with seven virgins. And he was very much looking forward to this. You know, that was shocking. That was shocking to me because I'm not a religious person. But I guess if you are deep within your religion and you follow it and you believe in it, that is, as you said, a very, very attractive reward. That guy could be a nobody on this planet. And now he has a purpose. He might find it hard to find someone to settle down with. He might find it awkward speaking to women. He might find it difficult to find someone to love. And it's sorted. He makes a big mark in life. He does what's needed. And then he goes to his heaven. He's got seven virgins and he's going to be living the life of Riley. A very strange mindset that I can't relate to. Uh, several years ago, there was a very interesting controversy about whether or not there are virgins in the Islamic um, heaven. There was a scholar who suggested controversially that the word that is usually translated as, uh, as virgin from Arabic actually wasn't Arabic at all. It was borrowed from another language and it didn't refer to women at all, but to a type of white raisin. And he felt that he it fitted into the context of the passages in the Quran better than the idea that this referred to uh, uh, to women. I mean, most has to be said, most scholars disagree with him. But in fact, at the time, this provoked much ridicule in the media because they, they pounced on the image of Islamist suicide bombers expecting virgins in heaven as a reward for their martyrdom, but getting a bowl of raisins instead. I'd heard something similar where there was, again, not from a background of your nature, but it, the translation was dogs as well, that it wasn't anything to do with beautiful women. So yeah, so... This incredible interview continues after these important messages. Is the poltergeist syndrome the only type of paranormal phenomena that can really be proven? Read Poltergeist, a new investigation into destructive haunting today. Available on e-reader and wherever books are sold. Visit www.sixth-books.com for more information. Become the alchemist of your world. In The Secret of the Alchemist, Colm Holland reveals how you can discover the power to miraculously change the world around you beyond all recognition and for the better. Colm will tell you the story of his encounter with Paolo Coelho and his best-selling book, The Alchemist, and how discovering the secret gave him the insights to achieve true empowerment in his life and how you can too. 
Read The Secret of the Alchemist today, available from wherever books are sold. Visit www.o-books.com to learn how you too can become the alchemist of your life. This is Jason Bland, host of Midwest Paranormal Presents Paranormal Soup, where we stream live as a webcast every Sunday night, 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. Eastern, with guests who will blow your mind. Live ghost box sessions where you can call into the show to see if the spirits will talk to you, and the world wide web of weird with the latest in paranormal news and evidence. We're bringing the weird every Sunday night, 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. Eastern, on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. Are paranormal entities assaulting us? Ghost Sex, The Violation is the best-selling true account and study of paranormal sexual abuse. Ghost Sex, The Violation by G.L. Davis is available on Kindle and through Amazon. Pray this never happens to you. What if the after-effects of a near-death experience were undeniable? What if a person could suddenly produce high-quality paintings of the afterlife, or if they acquired the ability to compose classical symphonies? Read Shine On. The remarkable story of how I fell under a speeding train, journeyed to the afterlife, and the astonishing proof I brought back with me. Read Shine On today on e-readers and wherever books are sold. Visit www.o-books.com today. Does Genesis teach that the human race was created by God or engineered by ETs? Read Escaping from Eden. Today, from wherever books are sold. GL here, and before we get back to the interview, did you know you can listen to this podcast not only ad-free, but with early VIP access as a TPC VIP Patreon. As a VIP, you will get two digital books, including my bestseller, Go Sex the Violation, to keep and read, plus digital content, two extra draws in our follower monthly book giveaway, and exclusive entry into a VIP Amazon gift voucher draw. This is the spooky part. All of that is just £3 or $3 to go VIP. So go VIP today so you don't hear ads like this again. Head over to www.patreon.com forward slash TPC VIP. That's patreon.com forward slash TPC VIP. On with the show. We've kind of touched upon this earlier on, and you refer to the oldest story in the world, which is the story of Gilgamesh. It's about man's search for immortality. Can you give us some more details on this, please? So the story of Gilgamesh, as as in its in its sort of entire length, is known from the um, from the seventh century BC, but it was actually first um, written down many many search- centuries earlier. We first find it. In, not in a, a single story, but separate stories about the hero Gilgamesh uh, at the end of the third millennium BCE. So it's nearly four and a half um, thousand years ago. And so it's, it is a search for immortality. The hero Gilgamesh, who was in fact considered in Babylonian tradition to be a real king, he searches for real immortality. He, he knows, he, or he's heard that there is one man who has achieved immortality and he wants to go and try and find him. And in various ways he fails he has the the sacred plant that will grant him immortality he has it in his grasp but 
it it evades him. Um, and he what he concludes is that the only route to immortality is through fame and children. At the very end of the story, we see that he's built the city walls of, of Uruk, which was the greatest city of its day. Um, and he concludes that these, in fact, will be his memorial and his legacy. And this is a common theme that runs through a lot of these ancient immortality stories. The, the hero or heroine having immortality in their grasp, but failing actually to achieve it. And in the end, concluding that immortality isn't the humans. It's almost as if that was the message of those uh, of those stories, that yes, you may wish for immortality, but you're human, you're not going to get it. In fact, the cosmology, the, the worldview of the um, of the early Mesopotamians was that the universe was split into three parts. There was earth for humans, there was heaven, which was just for the gods, and there was the underworld where the dead would go. And Heaven was a place that humans might visit, but they could never stay there. So heaven was not for humans. The idea that heaven was somewhere where humans would go as a reward for a good life came much later in most cultures. Intriguingly, though, exactly the same time as Gilgamesh was being written in a neighboring culture, ancient Egypt, there was an idea that immortality was conditional on living a good life. If you hadn't lived a good life, there was a danger that you wouldn't get there. So you have, at the same time, two very, very different ideas of the afterlife ne next to each other. So just a follow up question. There are very, you know, something that you've touched upon and something we've discussed and something that's certainly covered in your book, Where Airy Voices Lead, is that there are so many similarities to the afterlife, immortality, the heaven and hell ideas throughout so many different cultures separated by time, by geography, by language. Why do you think there are so many similarities? Is it based on a kernel of truth or is it just something inherent in us to believe in? It's a fantastic question. If we take if we take the, the major monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity and Islam, they certainly, they all drew on the same traditions uh, concerning physical resurrection, the immortal soul and the nature of the afterlife. They'd first um, developed in Palestine in the centuries between about 300 BCE and uh, 300 CE. But each of them then adapted those traditions in distinctive ways over the next few hundred years. Those three religions, they all, even though they're, they're different, they had similar debates concerning whether a human is a physical body, an immortal soul or both. Do they reunite after death? What aspect of a person goes to heaven? What's interesting, though, is that a lot of these debates then went back to the classical philosophers. So philosophers like Plato and Aristotle had talked about um, the soul and the immortal soul. Is it separate from the body or is it uh, is it linked to the body? And these were the first people who'd really tried to explain what a soul is and can it be immortal? Judaism, Christianity and Islam drew on those philosophical discussions because at the time, the, the intellectuals, the, the educated people, were well versed in Greek philosophy. And in fact, it was accepted that in order to, to be an educated person, that meant you were well versed in Plato and Aristotle. And therefore, a lot of the dis early uh, theological discussions within these uh, religions 
are carried out within the framework of Greek philosophy. And that's one of the ways in which some of these older ideas about um, about uh, the afterlife are borrowed and then adapted in later in later religions, I mean, through to the medieval and later periods. So, for example, within the writings of Plato, you have references to the immortal soul, to reincarnation and to uh, the underworld and the different parts of the underworld, a, a more heavenly part where the which is a reward for uh, the good, especially for the heroic good called Elysium. And then the place which is reserved for punishment of the wicked souls called Tartarus. And this idea that of Elysium being like a pleasure garden was originally an invention of Homer. That idea then is taken over to the Garden of Eden and the pleasure garden motif of, of, of heaven, especially the Islamic heaven. We've just been talking about the Islamic heaven. The place where you may or may not have your virgins is described as a pleasure garden. With um, It's bountiful. It's, it's, it's like the classic description of, uh, of Palestine being a land of milk and honey. All of that comes from those descriptions of classical Elysium mediated through those uh, Greek philosophers. I mean, the word paradise, we use that today yeah. to refer to heaven. That word comes from the Greek paradisos, and that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the Garden of Eden. But the Greek word in its turn was actually borrowed from uh, Old Persian, and there it meant an enclosure, a park, or a garden. So you have a word that originally just means a park or a garden. It shifts to the idea of being a heavenly pleasure garden, and then it shifts to the idea of being heaven itself. And again, a lot of this is inspired by the Greek idea of Elysium at a time when Greek ideas were very influential on early Jewish and Christian thought. You know, I think it's it's difficult nowadays to appreciate just how influential Greek philosophy was from its beginnings in about the sixth um, and fifth centuries BCE, certainly all the way through the uh, medieval period and into the uh, Enlightenment. And it, it affects all these understandings of the different religions and affects all their understandings of, uh, of the afterlife. Piotr, you may be one of the most fascinating people I've ever, ever spoken to in my life. That is absolutely superb. Now, when I was younger, I would often wake up in the night and I'd have that cold, hard realization that one day I would die and it would terrify me. But as a child, you were more scared by the idea of immortality than by the idea of death. Why do you think that was the case? I come from a Polish background and like many Poles, I was brought up as a Roman Catholic with this promise of eternal life in heaven. And as a young boy, I used to think about this a lot. I realised, yes, we're going to die and we're going to have a heaven and apparently it's never ending. And I tried to imagine what that would really like. And I found that actually my head span and I came close to panic when trying to imagine what living forever and ever would really be like. So, you know, millions and millions of years and then millions more never ending. I mean, something without an end. And I simply found it unimaginable and it was quite scary. And it's a feeling I've never forgotten. And so that's why I think I feared not so much death as the prospect of eternal life. The fact of some, something finishing, even if it was my own life, 
was somehow more comforting than the idea of something that never, ever ends. <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot now. You don't have to answer this if you don't want to, because it is a personal question. When you've taken that final, that sweetest final breath of all, what do you think is going to happen next? I'm going to I'm going to do a classic sitting on the fence here, uh, Gavin. One of the one of the things that uh, was very important to me um, in writing this book was to be very very objective about um, all these different routes to immortality. And then I had a a section in which I look at what what, what does uh, what does modern science think about them, and I came to the conclusion that although none of them can be proved, none of them can be dismissed. And I find that when I'm looking at the arguments for any of, uh, of these routes to immortality, whether it's uh, resurrection or reincarnation or transformation, I find them I find them quite convincing. And then I read the next one, I think, oh, that's quite convincing. But I also look at the explanatory gaps, and I realise, ooh, okay, that's a problem. I'm not sure how um, how you can um, explain your way out of that. And so I'm at the I'm at the stage where I genuinely don't know. And I'm quite pleased with that because that's what I wanted to come through in the book. I wanted it to be genuinely open to say a lot of this is about one's worldviews. It's about how you interpret things, what hopes and fears you bring to that interpretation, what choices you might make. And I think the important thing isn't necessarily to have a clear idea of which one of these paths, if any, is true or what will happen after death. It's to accept that what you may believe yourself is one possibility, but there is no proof for it. And we have to be open to the possibility that other people's explanations may be correct. We mustn't dismiss those other explanations as being somehow irrational or incoherent. Um, so I conclude the book by saying, well, there's an ethical dimension to this. And in the end, that's that's what's important to me, that that openness to other explanations. Just as a quick side note, can I ask, where did you come up for the title of Where Airy Voices Lead? Well, I'm a great reader of poetry. This is a quote from Endymion by John Keats. I, I could read you the whole um, passage, if you like. The, the, the passage is, he never is crowned with immortality who fears to follow where airy voices lead. So through the hollow, the silent mysteries of Earth descend. That's absolutely marvellous. Absolutely superb. Thank you. So your work with Egyptian antiquities, as well as indigenous groups from Australia, New Zealand and North America, expose you to different perspectives on death, immortality and time, which have influenced your approach to the topic. Could you give us some examples of these? My first job after leaving uh, university as a museum curator, and I curated a very large ancient Egyptian collection. And of course, a lot of this, a lot of the stuff in museums comes from tombs. And it was created specifically to immortalize individuals, either by preserving their names or their images, or of course, their bodies, and helping them into the ancient Egyptian afterlife. So you can't help uh, looking after an Egyptian collection without being uh, sort of aware of immortality most of the time. At the same time, as a museum curator, I worked with different indigenous groups from Australia, New Zealand and North America, specifically about the repatriation of the human remains of their ancestors. And that brought me into direct contact with different 
views on death and immortality and time, because in those cultures, the dead, even the long dead, continue to be regarded as persons and their consciousness, if you like, remains as an animating force in the dead body, in the landscape, in the community. And you know, none of this is theoretical. It's when you work with these with these groups, you can see that they are experiencing the dead viscerally on a daily basis. And that had a big impact on me and on the idea uh, on the ideas in where every voices lead. And that's one of the reasons why this this theme of worldviews and goals and values uh, runs right uh, right through the book, because it's, it's, we have so many different approaches which depend on different worldviews and different philosophies. That's the only way you can understand and appreciate these different beliefs in different types of immortality. Absolutely incredible. What a fascinating subject. And I think we need to have you back because I think there's lots and lots of rabbit holes that we can go down in. Now, where can people read where Eerie Voices lead and how can people contact you to keep up with you, find out more about what you're doing, future books and so on? Well, Wherever Voices Lead is um, available through all the usual uh, channels. It's on Amazon. I have an author's uh, page on Amazon and people can contact me through my website, piotrbienkowski.org.uk. Can I ask a massive favour, Piot? Could you just spell that for our for our listeners? They might have not have got that at the time. Would that be OK? That would be fine. So that's P-I-O-T-R-B-I-E. NKOWSKI.org.uk, and there's a place where people can leave messages. Please get in touch with Piot. He's a fascinating man. And for more information on the book as well, you can head over to www.o-books.com and just search for Where Eerie Voices Lead. Now, Piot, you have absolutely blown my mind. This has been a superb interview. It's been one of my favourite interviews ever. And I would like to ask you, could you please leave our listeners with a final thought, just something to leave them with before we head off? One of the things I've tried to bring out in the book is the immortalizing strategies of ordinary people. We, we know a lot about the rulers who, as it were, may make history. And some historians claim that the lives of ordinary mortals throughout history are mostly depersonalized statistics. But, you know, I've never felt that this was entirely true. I told you before, my background is an archaeologist, and that work has mostly uncovered the lives of ordinary people. And I've tried when we can to bring them out in, in, in the book. And one of the things that interests me is that um, ordinary people have had more modest immortalizing strategies to try and make sure that they and their deeds survive forever and aren't just forgotten. And I think from that point of view, it's salutary to remember that although we can't all make history, we can actually all make a difference. And however big or small, to mark the, the fact that we existed for a time on this earth. Thank you so much, Piot. Where Airy Voices Lead is an incredible accomplishment and a fascinating read that everyone needs to read. Go out and read it. It's absolutely superb. Thank you so much for your time, Piot. Thank you so much. Thank you, Gavin. There we have it. What do you think? Does immortality appeal to you? What would you do with this gift? Let me know what you would do or if you think there's a heaven or hell by visiting the Paranormal Chronicles on Facebook. Follow the wolf. 
Piotr has given me much food for thought with his incredible study of our relationship with immortality. I highly endorse you read Where Eerie Voices Lead. It is a fantastic book that presents so many eye-opening revelations from our past. It's not one to miss. For more information on Where Eerie Voices Lead, visit www.o-books.com. That's www.o-books.com. If you're new to the series and press follow now so you never miss a show and you will be entered into our monthly follower book draw. Press follow now, share to your friends, discover and download our archive and enjoy. Go VIP with our Patreon subscription. You get two digital copies of two Go Sex books. Yes, plus ad-free episodes, access to digital content and so much more. Go VIP today and visit www.patreon.com forward slash TPC VIP. That's patreon.com TPC VIP. You will be supporting the show. Thank you so much. Or you can visit the paranormalchronicles.com and press on the Go VIP link. Let me leave you with this. We are all living in strange and uncertain times, and I need you, yes, you listening right now, to know your life is important and that you matter. You are loved, and your life is extraordinary. A marvel of the universe. Please know this. You are loved. Piotr read some Keats and it reminded me of a poem read in school by William Wordsworth called Imitations of Mortality. And these are the last few lines. The clouds that gather round the setting sun do take a sober colouring from an eye that have kept watch over man's mortality. Another race has been and other palms are one thanks to the human heart by which we live thanks to its tenderness, its joys and fears, to the meanest flower that blows can give, thoughts do often lie too deep for tears. I am GL Davis. This is the Paranormal Chronicles podcast. Thank you for listening. Sleep well.